Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast that talks about all things therapist, therapist life, personal life, professional life. And we thank you very much for listening to us wherever you listen. If you wouldn't mind going over, leaving us a rating and a review, that definitely helps us out. And one of the long-standing debates that Katie and I have had off the show is, I was born in 1983. And this <laughs> is something where I, I, I'm kind of in that intergeneration gap between Gen X and Millennial. Katie very often says that I'm fully a Millennial, that I, I am always memeing. I'm, I've got the, the Millennial beard. And, yep, today, it's, and it's quite a beard, Kurt. It's quite a beard. <laughs> today, we're going to talk about millennials as therapists, and we're going to talk about this both kind of in the employee aspect, but also in the entrepreneurial aspect. So get your avocado toast, get your bullet coffee, <laughs> sit back, scroll through your Instagram, and let this kind of just take over. I'll shiver you. Yes. <laughs> so... I know that millennials are quickly becoming the largest aspect of the workforce overall. This is very much going to be reflected in the therapy world just as soon. I think some of the statistics that I'm reading is that millennials are making anywhere between 25 and 40% of the workforce right now. And this is quickly replacing the baby boomers as the largest generational workforce. So sorry, Gen Xers, you're still the middle child. And we're still mostly ignored. It's okay. I didn't ignore you now, but (laughs) as millennials move into this workforce aspect, I, I hear from some people complaints about the attitudes of how millennials come across their work ethic. And I, I think first of all, referring to this generation as millennials has already become so stigmatized and so charged that first of all, if you're referring to people as millennials in your workforce, you're making a mistake because that's just drawing a line in the sand as far as here's a battle line. Yeah. I think especially with the negative perception that especially baby boomers have of millennials, I think it definitely has become almost a a taunt. You're a millennial. Now, I want to clarify, me telling you that you're a millennial is not that. 
it's me saying, accept and embrace the fact that you have all these wonderful traits that go along with being born when you were. <laughs> and I think that this is exactly why I wanted to do this episode and why I think that millennials are going to actually really transform what the therapy world is because of the opportunities that are really available to us at the time in this world that that we've come up. And I'm going to compare us mostly to Generation X because I know Katie well enough that this is probably the majority of our listenership as well as people in the Gen X and millennial generations. But I, I think that there's still some major generational differences that are going to interplay in the way that our workforce really goes about things. Because if I hear the number one complaint about millennials is that they're entitled. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that as well. Now, being an entitled millennial myself, I want to get kind of your perspective on why are millennials seen this way? I think for me, I don't know that I've had that perspective, although I can understand folks who have. So I will speak outside of my own personal understanding of it because I really want to clarify I am I am not this these are not my opinions. These are things I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that there's this idea that really, I mean, to me it gets summed up almost completely, in my perspective anyway, of why other people might feel pissed at millennials is is uh the book The Four Hour Work Week. And have you read that book, Kurt? I, I haven't, so I'm okay. interested in what you gotta say. So the four-hour work week, Tim Ferriss wrote this book, and it really speaks to living life now. And I don't know where Tim Ferriss fits, if he's a millennial or a Gen X or whatever. I, I don't know his age, um, and I don't know where he falls. But, but the idea is that really, if you can work for four hours a week and really think about living differently... And so like he would go and live in Costa Rica for four months. It would cost him less to live there. He would, you know, work, he would check his email and, and get his work done in four hours and learn how to scuba dive or something. Like it was, it's something where he would, he was basically saying waiting for retirement is silly because when you're older, if you wait till you're 65, 70 for retirement, you're less able to really enjoy the fruits of your labor. And so he was talking about being more episodic with work, about really getting creative about how you don't work, <laughs> getting creative about what you own. Do you really own a car? Do you own a house? It's, it's that kind of stuff where it's thinking like, how do I really enjoy my life now? And for me, when I think about that, it's very exciting. But I think as a strong Gen Xer, it's something where I get very caught up in, I need to have my, my work day. I need to have my work week. I need to think about taking the two two weeks of vacation a year. I'm thinking towards retirement. I have to save for retirement. And I think the 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 difficulty I have when I hear somebody, you know, kind of out there doing some of this stuff, like going and traveling to Tahiti or whatever, and they've barely started working, is is something where I get a little jealous and I feel like, why do they get to do that when I'm not doing it? And I think and and that's something where I quickly can understand, like, that's a choice they're making. This is a choice I'm making. But I think it's what for folks who have so solidly kind of locked into this is what work should look like. This is the structure. I've earned my stripes. 
then it can be very hard when somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm going to take the world by storm. I'm not going to stand on, you know, kind of formality. I'm going to jump in, do the work so I can get it done quickly so that I can live my life. I think that's the stuff where from from what I've heard other people say, that's where it's like, well, they're entitled. They think they should be able to do whatever. They should have this level of salary right away. They should do all these things right away. And there's not this kind of learning the ropes, you know, kind of going through almost an old school mentorship process where now I deserve to have these, the corner office, and now I deserve to take these long, fancy vacations. It's, I'm doing it right away. So I'm going to start this with kind of the glib response is that millennials have perfected what the Gen X dream was. And there's almost kind of this, this resentment that- And I think that a big part of this is you know, for, for broad strokes. A lot of Gen Xers entered the workforce in the 90s during this booming economy that they came of age right before the internet was really widely connecting people. Mm-hmm. And so right before they're entering the workforce, kind of this high school, college sort of era is what really kind of led to this whole idea of Gen Xers being slackers, that they're... Mm. There was kind of this, my understanding is we're waiting for something that's not quite there yet. And by the time it got there, it was something where you're already into adulthood and you're already buying the cars, paying the mortgage, moving Mm -hmm. on with your life. Whereas for millennials, the internet was widely available during your formative years, during middle school, high school, where there's this connection. I remember going home and jumping on AOL Instant Messenger and talking with my (laughs) friends. (laughs) But this is something where that connectivity has something to us that, that we have embraced as kind of an idea that we come together to build things. And a perfect example of this is Wikipedia of Nobody pays anybody to make Wikipedia. <laughs> this is the kinds of things that that ha- have really been embraced by the millennial generation is to create and connect with things and to refine things to make it better just out of the sense of wanting to contribute and, and connect with things. But I think the other aspect of this too is millennials largely entered the workforce not during a booming economy, but during the the Great Recession. And so what a lot of the millennials looked at is this loyalty that companies are asking for, that bosses are asking for, this learning the rope sort of thing, that there was no loyalty because a lot of millennials got laid off. They Mm. saw people who had put in a generation of work to a company lose all of their retirement in in the matter of a few months. And so this long-term planning didn't really seem to make sense to a lot of millennials because if that's what boomers are doing and that's what Gen Xers are doing and there's no reason that it's going to, there's no promise that it's actually going to be there when it, when you get there, why not live in kind of this episodic life to take advantage of the things that you have while you have them? I think that makes a lot of sense. I, to me, when I think about when I entered the workforce, I did you know, it was two segments. One was before I went back to get my master's to be a therapist and and one was afterwards. And there really wasn't that fear that I wouldn't get a job. Like I didn't, I didn't feel that. I, I was like, you know, I may not get paid very much, but I'm going to get a job. 
And I was able to, to immediately kind of seek independence and I was able to immediately, you know, kind of go out on my own. Whereas I think when there's not work, and I certainly have had clients in these situations and I've had colleagues in these situations where there's not work to be had or there's not that loyalty. And it makes sense that you would kind of want to get what you could at each moment. It's survival. It's building a life. And I, and I understand the lack of loyalty. I know for myself, even, you know, kind of, I still feel a loyalty for a company that ejected me, you know, like, <laughs> like it, it's something where I saw a long-term path for myself, whereas most of the people who were my employees did not because it was the, 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 the economy had shifted and there was such high productivity standards and there was not a sense of I'm going to take care of this employee. It was what can this employee do to help keep our, our company afloat or our agency afloat. So to me, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about it in that frame that it's about if there's not loyalty to you, if you're seen as a cog in the machine, if you're seen as expendable because you're the newest into, you know, kind of last in, first out, that it would be hard to have the the reciprocal, <laughs> you know, loyalty if that's not. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that to me, it helps to bridge the gap. But I think that there's also this piece of, and you talked about this, like this collaborative aspect. I think there's also this piece of, of separate from loyalty, there's this, this, and, and I don't know if this is exactly entitlement, maybe that still fits into that. But there's people I hear talking about millennials who come in and think that they are better than they are, you know, that they think that they know more than they know. It's almost kind of that teenager. They know everything. They, they feel like they should be able to do work that they're not yet qualified for. They're claiming expertise they don't have. And to me, I think, I don't know that I see that necessarily because I think I, in that way, I'm probably more millennial. I came in and I told everybody what they should do. Um, I'm just one of those people, <laughs> as you know. But that never bothered me because I like people who are, you know, kind of jumping in and t stepping forward. But I think a lot of people, and I think potentially less than less Gen X and more baby boomers, but like that this this notion that these these young upstarts are coming in and telling us how to to do business and telling us that we're doing it all wrong or thinking they have expertise they don't have. So so explain that one to me, Kurt. I'll go back to the point that I brought about the access to information that we have, that I carry around with me a device that with, with a few swipes of my thumb has access to potentially the entirety of human knowledge. <laughs> I, I spend, that sounds so fascinating. It does sound fascinating. I also <laughs> use this device mostly to look at cat videos and <laughs> share memes with people. But having access to this kind of information allows for people of all generations, but since millennials are kind of the tech pushers of having access to information does not necessarily translate into experience. And so there's kind of this conceptual idea of knowing how things should work based on the people who've done research, written articles. And when you look at the way that millennials operate in the world, and this is you know, transcended to other generations too, but before we buy things, before we go into things, we research them and get other people's opinions before we make our ultimate decisions. And we largely do that with conceptual ideas too, as it applies to our, our work, that there's kind of this good enough sort of aspect of, I know enough about this to make a 
strong recommendation that without the resume experience that goes along with it, that has been the traditional way of earning your stripes of, you know, doing, learning the ropes, whatever you want to call it, that it comes across as entitled when it's other people's opinions just packaged in a way that a millennial is going to present it. Now, some of that does need to be refined through more work aspects, more work experience. And I think that in working with millennial therapists as a supervisor or as a millennial who's potentially being coached in this way, one of the aspects that really needs to be taken down is not this, I'm the expert and here's how you need to look at things, but really looking at more of, let's talk about the broader experiences or the case examples that might come across that need to be fleshed out in this. Approaching it more as teaching an equal as opposed to teaching a student. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Okay, so we're into the advice portion. So for supervisors, you're saying this employee or or uh, associate, pre-licensed, provisionally licensed associate who comes into your office and is in the process of earning their hours to be supervised and is, and, you know, you have 20 years of experience that you approach it as an equal. You approach it more collaboratively. You approach it more... Well, that's different. Collaborative is different than equal because I think you can collaborate as a mentor, but the equality part, I think, I think that there is some value to that. So I'm not saying I want to dismiss that out of hand, but I get concerned because I do think that there are things that we do have to tell our supervisees what to do. There are things where we do have to, you know, make sure that we're, that we are teaching and training. Now, I think collaborative and experiential is better. That's why that's how we do our conference, right? Like, I don't think we're just going to be talking at people. But but the idea of equal, I think that's where Gen X and baby boomers may bristle is, is that aspect of it. Because I think there is a responsibility. They are working under your license. And so I think there does need to be this idea of, I, I am the person that is coming from the place of knowledge. And I want to collaborate with you to, to sort all of that out and bring in your fresh ideas. I think that's good. But I don't think it's like, whatever you think, you're an equal. And I think that that's really where if we worked in a profession where it was about specific metric outputs, 
In, in other words, that it needed to provide a repetitive sort of, you know, creating a widget or creating a certain number of widgets that really was more of a, any sort of mindless cog in the machine worker could do that, then here's how you do your job is an appropriate type of management for that. But that's not what therapy is. Therapy is a lot more of the, the value of the person who's in the room. And as the therapy generation and really having that interconnectedness with our peers and oftentimes with a lot of our teachers and our mentors growing up is it's got to have that value aspect of it that really needs the encouragement to manage this kind of work, but this more values oriented kind of work. The creativity gets a lot more encouraged by fostering choice in it as opposed to here's how you do it. And a couple yeah, I don't that. know if I, t- I don't know if I totally agree with that though. I think that there are, are a lot of things that you have to tell someone how to do as a therapist. I think you need to tell them how to do paperwork. I think you need to tell them how to schedule their appointments. I think you need to tell them how to do EMDR. Like there are, you know, evidence-based practices. There's a lot of stuff that you just have to tell someone how to do. And the reason I, I'm saying this so strongly, Kurt, is that I have seen really, and and not even a millennial, this was, you know, Gen X or baby boomer person where I gave her free reign and said, hey, this is what you have to do, like outcome. This is the outcome of, of the work. Get creative. And she hid out because she had no idea what to do. So I think that we don't want to go so far the other way. I understand that it's not you're a cog in the machine, but evidence-based practices, you are taught what to do. Paperwork, scheduling, documents, you know, all of that stuff. There are things that you have to be told what to do. And I think my experience supervising millennials is that's where some of this tension comes in is that those are the parts of the jobs that most people don't like. But unless you have a foundation of structure and know what you're doing in those pieces, I think that you cannot be creative because you're constantly creating the stupid stuff. I mean, okay, maybe I shouldn't call evidence-based practices and documentation stupid, but these are the things that we have to do in a lot of our jobs. And those are aspects of the job that are kind of those very structural, you know, create this widget, you know, your note needs to include X, Y, and Z. But even, even people I've talked to in supervision have said, well, I should be able to write my notes the way I want to. I think that that's kind of any employee who's moving. Into <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't think that that's necessarily unique to, to millennial therapists whatsoever, where I see yeah. kind of this difference is, it and, and we've got our whole episode about CBT is crap as far as evidence-based yes, practices yes. go, but it's really about, I, I'm talking about kind of the delivery of, of the therapy that is really more in embracing the, the individual's spin on it because the further that we remove the therapist, and this, and this is especially true in the millennial generation, the further we remove the therapist from having ownership and creativity over the work that they do, the you know the more clinical, the more EBP that it has to be, then the less value that they're going to get out of that work. And that's just fostering a whole new level of burnout that we could probably create a whole episode around. <laughs> I think we did, didn't we? <laughs> One of our previous episodes was. <laughs> but in order to 
support the employee to foster their long-term success, they have to have ownership over something. And to really go, and I think, you know, what you're talking about is, you know, uh, letting go of the reins to a completely results-oriented work environment of, you know, here's free reins as long as you get X, Y, and Z done. I, I think that this is unique to people coming out of, you know, a long time in higher education is that for so long, that's been the way that they've been programmed is to perform metrics, to have, you know, certain things that they need to meet that they've, they've kind of not been encouraged to have their own spin on things. And I've seen this in one of the classes that I teach at the end of the master's program, where I take a lot more of this apply some of these principles to your own life and conceptualize how this works for you and your profession. And the ensuing discussion usually goes about three or four questions deep is kind of this very encouraged idea as, oh, we we have permission to think in this way. And without specific parameters, the next question, about the fifth question is usually, so how long does this need to be? How many words does this need to be? How many pages? Like really looking for these specific things that as we move into our own independence later on into our careers, you know, post licensure, if we're embracing that entrepreneurial aspect that we kind of naturally move into this. Here's how I make this my own, that I can still do my notes and I can still hit these soap things, but we are able to, do it in our own way. I agree with all of that. I think the caution I was really trying to say was about the letting go of the reins too soon. Because I think this tension that we're talking about, where there, it's, it, I mean, it really is like this teenager kind of thing where it's like, I want to be independent, but tell me what to do. Um, I think that there is this piece that that tension needs to be there. And I think it's about navigating that tension because for the supervisee coming, being told you have to do it a certain way, or these are the things that you need to learn before you can kind of go out on your own in some ways, I think it can feel very stifling. It can feel like it's less meaningful. There, there are so many pieces to that that can feel really, you know, awful, you know, and leads to that kind of burnout that we were talking about. But I think it's, it's also something where without any structure with it just being like, what do you think? And how do you want to, how do you want to approach this work with, without an infrastructure internally of understanding what the work is, you can't do that. So I think, and then there's the folks that are be like, well, just tell me what to say in the sessions. You know, and so like, I think that there is a real tension for the supervisee about how do I how do I do this work and ha- and own it? But also, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm terrified. So I think the tension on the supervisor side is to be collaborative, to to help bring that out, to help the supervisee with the decision making, so that they can own the work, but still providing the backstop of this is how you can do the work, or this is how you have to do some of these things. Because I think that there there are actual parameters. So to me, I think the tension has to be there. But I think going back and kind of reiterating your point, collaboration and having the person that you're, you're training be the person that kind of folds it in and makes it their own. That's much stronger than telling someone what to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what you're talking about is it's a unique part of a a therapist development where they're really 
looking for these, you know, very structural things, you know, tell me what to say, where do I put the Kleenex box? You know, these kinds of things yeah. that typically in, in a therapist development are resolved fairly quickly and very, fairly easily with the right kind of encouragement. But I think when supervisors are meeting people at that developmental period and somebody is in that period who has a really critical supervisor, that it tends to make them more scared of making mistakes throughout the rest of their development. Yeah. I think also that in some ways, as far as management goes, this is also kind of that helicoptering sort of aspect that we're so quick to blame the the parents of today and the parents of millennials on preventing people from making mistakes. And so there's just kind of this mm-hmm. nervousness of if we don't let them make mistakes, then they're not going to learn. And so I think that this yeah. is also where some of that other tension continues to develop that we've, we've got to be willing to let people make those mistakes and face the consequences there. I agree. And I think that there are some mistakes that we cannot allow our supervisees to make. Absolutely. Yeah. A couple of other points I know as we move through this episode and without making this several days long, (laughs) uh, (laughs) that, you know, I think part of this millennial workforce is also really embracing technology a lot more. Yes. I think that this is something where in a lot of other fields, we see people with flex schedules and things like being able to work from home a lot of days. And telehealth is is helping this in some aspects. But I, I think that what we're going to see with millennial therapists is a lot more of embracing this technology and this connectiveness in between sessions and gasp boundary breaking and all of this kind of, you know, breaking the frame of what therapy is, but that is really going to not only transform the field, but is also going to help the non-therapists actually access mental health a lot better. And, you know, this is something where we're in a field that's really slow to change. And this is happening really, really quickly. And I think that millennial therapists are going to be a driving force of really establishing what a, a new access to mental health is, what a new, what boundaries actually mean. And I think that this is a good thing because this is taking the things that we actually talk with our clients about and actually making therapy about that, which is asking for help when you need it, advocating for things when you need them, respecting boundaries when they're not being met. And I, I see this as a good move overall for mental health, but it just takes kind of this acceptance of how quickly this change is happening by people who've been doing it in a lot more of the established way for a lot longer. I think this speaks to to what we talk about a lot, which is time is moving forward. Technology is being integrated. And I think that there are ways that that works really well. And I think that there are ways that it doesn't. And I think it's it's about the thoughtfulness. It's about staying grounded in the laws and ethics of the profession, staying grounded in clinical excellence. And I think it's really being thoughtful about all of those things. I think that some of that requires experimentation, right? Like, does text therapy work, for example? I don't know. I've not tried it. Certainly, I've had clients who have communicated to me between sessions, and some of it's worked well, and some of it hasn't. And I've kind of sorted that out. But I think it's it's something where innovation is important 
And it needs to be grounded in some of the things that have made the profession strong. And I think that's the part where I think Gen Xers or, or baby boomers can get very concerned is that there's this leap forward that either by perception or by reality is not grounded in those things. And it's like, wait a second, you know, like doing this, that, or the other thing feels really risky because it's it's not necessarily like the theoretical underpinnings of the decision aren't fully explained. And I think to me, being able to actually get a, a thought process around that, a, a rationale for what you're doing and why you're doing it and being able to tie it back helps to bring it back into kind of the mainstream in some ways. I think to me, that's what we're trying to do, right? We're saying like, hey, yeah, do you walk and talk therapy? Yeah, do incorporate technology, do these things, but make sure you've understood the, the foundation. And I think the perception is that there are some folks who are not doing that, that they're just saying like, hey, therapy's old school. And either, you know, like we talked about in the episode, you know, walking the line between coaching and therapy, but also, you know, they're either just jumping to, to coaching because therapy doesn't hold enough for, for what they want to do, or they're calling it therapy, but there's things that, they're, that are really problematic that they could get in trouble for, or you know, and, and getting in trouble for something maybe that, hey, you know, the laws or the ethics haven't caught up, but it also could be that they're doing stuff that's really harmful to clients. And so I think that's the part that feels a little bit like the Wild West of like, hey, we're becoming innovative, we're becoming entrepreneurial, we're, we're doing these things. But unless there's some, some of the infrastructure that supports like, hey, this actually has a solid rationale, um, I think that would be something that would be hard. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I'm glad that you bring up that the laws and ethics probably aren't changing fast enough to really do this. And and this might be a, a really wild swing coming from me having argued the differences between coaching and therapy so much and, and those lines. But I think that as coaches become stronger and more prevalent, that therapy is really at risk of being left behind, at least in the entrepreneurial private practice sort of market, if we don't start embracing some of these ideas a lot more quickly. And I think that oftentimes not only are the laws and ethics not quick enough to change, but also the research around this isn't quick enough to actually reflect what's happening in the real world. Because what's happening in the real world can't always necessarily be replicated in a study. And the people who are doing the studies produce what is replicable, but not necessarily reflecting you know, and by the time it gets published, you know, it, we're, we're seeing articles out now about Facebook's influence on therapy. You know, we're not getting out into, well, here's <laughs> what's happening, you know, with Instagram. And the, I read something recently about how the, the true new poets of, of the 21st century are Instagram therapists. And this is, you know, a really cool, unique thing that has brought a lot of people and a lot of ideas out about, 
you know, what, what it is to talk openly about anxiety and depression and about getting resources through a infographic. And I, I think that this is the kinds of stuff that the, the laws and the ethics are reluctantly agreeing fit within these parameters. I agree that there needs to be a basis in something, but the something that is there that's established the research and everything else isn't necessarily what's happening now in the current moment and being able to utilize the tools that are available to us to have, a, you know, what's happening in the current moment be addressed is a risk that I think a lot of people are taking and are probably succeeding more often with than are harming people. But we are, you know, very much a profession that has been, you know, don't harm your clients. And I think that we're essentially throwing out the baby with the bathwater with this. I don't know if if I would agree that that there's less harm most likely being done. I, I don't I don't I mean I really don't know. It's not like I'm saying I disagree. I, I don't know because I think that there's a lot of things that happen behind closed doors as a therapist who's worked with a lot of folks who've been in a lot of other therapy. I hear a lot of really awful things that people are doing in the name of, you know, defining their own boundaries or <laughs> doing, you know, innovative things. So I think I think it is important that we're cautious and we think about doing all the things that we talk about, deliberate practice, consultation, making sure that you're not hiding in a hole and it's just you and your clients there. Like I think it's important <laughs> that that you really want to make sure that you're you're doing good work, but I I do agree that there are going to be times when pushing the envelope is important. But to me, and I think maybe it's more kind of as an, an establishment Gen Xer, I, I want us to also then push the envelope and, and, and shift the status quo. Like I don't want it to be something where there's these two types of therapy. There is old school and new school and new school has gone off on their own. Like I, I really feel like as a profession, as individuals, really being able to assess and and give feedback on ethics codes or really kind of assess legislation or or really looking at how do we make therapy more accessible across state lines like all of those things i feel like to actually make the establishment shift with us i think is an important part because i i think just saying we we can push the boundaries and and it's not going to always be right there i think we we just i i really feel like we need to be cautious I I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so something that you brought up earlier in the episode is kind of the, the entrepreneurial ideas of what what millennials are coming into. And I, I think that this is a, another huge generational difference is that you grew up in an era where the absolute worst thing that somebody could do is sell out. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this is, you know, something where I can go back and I can watch old movies. The music that I listen to comes largely from your era. You know, mm. Real Big Fish's songs sell very out. old right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is, again, something where, you know, that was maybe a, a sprinkling of the influence of, of when I was growing up. Is, you know, don't, don't sell out, man. And then what we watched your generation do is grow up and sell out that this is <laughs> something where if we're going to follow in your footsteps, what we witnessed is people come up with ideas to sell them to the next bigger company. 
you know, come up with this thing and Google will buy it. And this then becomes kind of the defining aspect of what your, what your meaning is, what your worth is, is if I can come up with something and either mass market it and sell, sell it to a large group of people or create something that somebody else is going to invest in and take it over and then I have the rewards for that. This is now kind of what the millennial generation's goal is, is to create something that is successful. And it's never been more successful than in the last 15 to 20 years with the the use of things like YouTube and social media where we can create things and people will buy them and follow them and you know however many followers that you might have. But that in and of itself is now the goal of the generation. I mean, that's obviously very entrepreneurial. And I don't know that I agree that my generation sold out, but you know, I appreciate that perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the piece that I'm hearing and I think the the piece that where the tension comes in is actually the the sales part because I think part of selling in a more traditional way is guaranteeing results, is saying how you're the best and that kind of stuff. And I think that there is a piece of that when that comes into therapy that obviously is illegal and ethical to say, I'm an expert when you're not, or to promise results and that kind of stuff. But I think it's that piece of going into that space with that mindset of, I'm going to create something amazing and someone will buy it from me, I think is so different than how therapy has traditionally been marketed, right? Like there's, or, or even any of the related things that therapists might do, whether it's a book or a, a, you know, workshop or, you know, kind of the old school, you know, alternative revenue streams, right? Mm -hmm. And so when someone is talking about, I'm an expert in working with eating disorders, and like, they're not even licensed, I think that's the part where it gets to be an issue. Or that like, hey, I'm not going to get licensed, I'm going to be a coach, and I'm going to build this gigantic course on something. And I don't necessarily have the experience that the person that's been in practice for 20 years does that wants to also create that same course and just hasn't done it. So I think, I think that's where the tension comes in. And I think that, you know, we could talk for days and we're like pretty deep into this episode. We probably should finish. So maybe this is a whole other conversation about, you know, different ideas around passive (laughs) income and selling things. But I think that this, this idea is that there are people who could be 20 years in practice and create a course that would be horrible. And there's people who just start that could create an amazing course. But I think it goes back to that, the, the kind of older idea of I've earned my stripes and how dare you come in and say you're an expert when, or charge more than I do, or that kind of stuff when you've just begun. And I think in truth, that's about the skills of each clinician. And some people should be able to charge as much as they want. And some really shouldn't even be practicing. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> no, and to, to respond to that, I'm, this is a, an area of the free market where I'm okay with this. If you can go and sell yourself to do this, to have people respond to you in a way where you're charging higher prices. Again, this is a good thing. This is something where, millennials are tapping into an ability to do this that was the Gen Xers dream at that earlier point. And, you know, I I think that a very interesting comparison that is popping up in my mind is this is kind of similar to how music has really changed in the last 30 years, that there 
you know, was really kind of the response to the Seattle sound and the, the grunge era that a lot of business around music was like, well, we're not letting those independent people ever do that again. And so they really clamped down and kind of produced this over-refined evidence-based, you know, music sort of idea that really confined a lot of things. But bands that have kind of survived, you know, through the last 30 years, what you'll see them talk about is how their role in in really spreading their music out has gone less from really following all of the steps of, you know, the traditional structure and more engagement through things like social media and being more accessible more of the time in order to really get the response. And I think that this is something that through all of our work with Therapy Reimagined brand called You that we talk about, this is selling that relationship you're selling is what it's like to be in a relationship with you that makes the therapeutic process work. I agree. I think the the caution, and I keep saying I agree, and then I have a caution because I think that's what it really is. That's why I think for me, I don't, obviously I'm working with a millennial, whether you'll claim it or not on one particular day or another. But I also believe that this innovation and this perspective is really good and kind of helps to, to shift and, and, and move things forward. So, so I'm, I'm saying this from a place of love and of caution. And I think for me, there is a part of this that, you know, I, I will use uh, Ben Caldwell's words kind of against him, but it's it's this thing of if someone is selling themselves very well and they've got their their branded website and they've got all of these beautiful things and they've done the entrepreneurial part well and then provide crappy service, like, yes, they've done that part well, but they've also, they're still hurting our profession. And so I think it's it's something where the caution really comes into how do we how do we as a profession make sure that we are incorporating the innovation, the branding, the marketing, all of the pe- all the entrepreneurial pieces in while still holding high standards? That's all I'm trying to say. So we would love for you to reach out to us in all of our millennial accessible ways on <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, email. Phone? No, don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> I won't pick up. Don't at Katie, but you can at us. <laughs> uh, we'll include links to all of our social medias in our show notes. Uh, you can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're there, you, you can check out the Therapy Reimagined Conference. It's going to be here in a couple of months, October 18th, Woo-hoo! 19th. Super excited to be teaming up with Simple Practice. They're taking care of CEs for basically if you're a master's level therapist anywhere in the United States, Simple Practice is taking care of education credits for you. It's in universal. We're collaborating. We're collaborative with them. Uh, <laughs> you can also collaborate with your family and make it into a vacation because it's literally across the street from Universal Studios. You can turn at least some of it into a tax deductible vacation. Woohoo! And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. 
Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.